Bibles or your phone, go ahead and open it up to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a passage in Hebrews chapter 1, specifically verses 1 through 4. And then we're going to be looking at chapter 2, specifically verses 5 through 12. So just go ahead and open that as a, a, a reference. I am doing something a little bit new, not that you care or want to know, but I'm trying to use my iPad because I do so much on it, my thoughts, that I just feel like, man, I, I don't need to like go and print something extra and maybe can save a few trees. So anyway, uh, we, as you can see, are beginning a new sermon series. We just completed James, the book of James, which was to, to help encourage you to grow in your, in your faith and to look more like Jesus. Well, we're going to dive into the book of Hebrews, and what we're going to quickly notice is that a lot of things start and begin with Jesus and actually end up with Jesus as well. And so as we dive into this book of Hebrews, there's a few things that I want to be that I want to give you that I think will be helpful as we walk through these this seven weeks looking intently at the book of Hebrews. There are five lenses I want to briefly give you as way of introduction to introduce this book to you, what you're going to experience, what we're going to be flipping through in the pages, what you need to discern, what you need to see, what the author is trying to convey to you, what he is trying to motivate you to do, what he's trying to stir up in you. There are five things that I believe that the book of Hebrews is going to offer us. One is exaltation which should cause us to worship. The author of Hebrews moves to exaltation. We will see the life of Christ as it truly is, magnificent and supreme. All the accomplishments, all the meaning, all the positions, all that exists in creation is held and managed in and through Jesus who rules and reigns as supreme. He is the end-all, be-all. All things should start with him and all things end with him. As we will see... He is the final word and the only moving uh, and the only thing moving forward that brings us to salvation and sanctification. He has endured all things, he has accomplished all things, he has given us all things because he is supreme. And this will become more evident as we venture through the book of Hebrews. What the author is trying to get his audience to understand is that Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way. There is no other way to have a relationship with the Father but through Jesus. The Father verifies this by crowning Jesus and glorifying Jesus on a throne above all things created, both in heaven and on earth. And this is revealed to us in this book, as we will soon see. So the first lens that we need to look through in understanding what Hebrews is trying to communicate to us is exaltation, that Jesus is ultimate and supreme. Second is exchange. Another lens through which we need to read the book of Hebrews is exchange. The word better is used 15 times throughout the whole entire book of Hebrews. This means that it is a motif of comparison threaded through its pages. Constructing lesser, incomplete, not as good as things, comparison or comparing things that are incomplete, not as good as, that are lesser, to the things that are better. That is, those things that Jesus Christ offers you through his life. Jesus offers us better things than lesser things we have given that he will give to us. In Jesus, we get to exchange sin and failure, corruption, loneliness, suffering with mercy, grace, hope, companionship, and victory. The lesser Jesus has taken 
in order that we can experience the better things that he and the Father desire for us to have. So the second lens, first one, the first lens being exaltation, second being exchange, the third being expectation, the already, not yet. Because of the supremacy of Jesus and all his accomplishments, we will see laid out through this book the ex- uh, Yeah, the exchange he offers for better things. The author of this book provides us with a great expectation that what Christ is offering to us can take root in our lives now and that there is still more to come. What this means is that we can begin to experience the riches of our big brother that he has brought into our lives now and still there's yet more to come. We can drop the baby bottle and start feasting on meat. We can finally move beyond this wretched life of sin and move towards a life like Jesus. This is great expectation. We can stop living with lesser things and start living with better things afforded to us, given to us by our big brother, Jesus. We can come to expect that hope that we desire when things are unpleasant, difficult, lonely, and devastating... We can come to expect that there will be that hope and that companionship and that love and that support in the life of Christ. Man, I can't wait to learn more about that great expectation. Fourthly, a fourth lens through which we peer and look into. As we unfold these themes throughout our series, we'll be confronted with realities that should cheer us up and help endure things and help us to endure things that seem impossible to endure. You'll find great comfort and encouragement that'll give you the energy to take the next step when you just want to lie down. It will give you the hope to take the next breath when you just want to quit. And it will give you the comfort of companionship when you feel all alone. The author seeks to motivate you to trust in something so faithful and sure that you will never have to wrestle with doubt or uncertainty again. The author strives to convince you that living life with Jesus will bring you to a point where when you experience pain and struggle, you will have joy and hope. And finally, this one's a little bit tough for me because I have to communicate it to you. Examination, conviction, and challenge. The final lens that I'm going to offer as a, as a means to look into this book and what the author's trying to convey is for you to examine your life. Speaking of that confrontation, the final lens through which the author gets us to look may be painful to our eyes. There will be moments throughout this series where the challenge is intentional because your life is at stake. The author uses intentional warnings not to scare you or cause doubt, but to get you to examine your life in relation to the life of Jesus and what he is offering you. It is meant to make you uncomfortable by effect, but also to stir the stagnant waters of your life, the stale, non-moving waters of your life in order to become an ever-flowing fountain of life, which is a true life with Jesus. You have heard it said that we often, and we often quote from the Word of God, that the Word of God is like a double-edged sword cutting through flesh down to the bone and marrow. Well, that's in the book of Hebrews. So we have to examine, and it might feel pokey. 
You might feel some flesh tear. It might be a little difficult to hear. You might want to punch me in the face for communicating it, but don't deal with the messenger, deal with God. You will need to examine your life. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, cut away the things in your life that doesn't live up to the standard of Jesus and replace them with the things that bring you in relationship with Jesus. It'll be hard, but remember, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength and joy to do it. One more final point. In preaching, it'll be our job, Pastor Marshall and I, to help arrive at application. It's our thing. It's what we do. It's what we signed up for. It's what God has called us to do, is to look at the people that we are meant to steward, look at our lives, look at the life of the family, and say, how do we apply this specifically and directly into our lives? And if it's a hard word, how do we take that hard word and make it have its weightiness? And just leave it there and let you wrestle with it. How to get this book into your life is our job, is our aim in preaching. Because we operate from a belief that is not only life-changing, but it's a life-blessing to do so. That through obedience does come honor and glory and great reward. And if you don't believe me, just look up and see where Jesus currently is sitting in a position of supremacy, of honor and glory and reigning and ruling, all because he endured suffering, all because he took on weakness and became obedient even to the point of death. And God raised him up and gave him a victorious position above all things. And if that's our big brother, then we could come to expect those same things, that when we endure the hard things, and but yet we st- seek to live the life of our big brother in obedience, we too will find glory, honor, and blessing and be seated with Jesus on his throne. So now, without further ado, let's dive in with these lens in a- and put these lens in action. And uh, in the opening chapter of this book, we will highlight everything else that is unfolding in the rest of the series to come. So go ahead and look with me in Hebrews chapter 1. Again, we're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then skipping to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world... And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint or representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a much more excellent name than they. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. 
for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see, yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified or being sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name, my brothers, in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And that's the word of the Lord. There are so many things. I mean, I, I, I mean, Hebrews is packed, jam-packed, full of nuggets of wisdom and of revelation about who God is and all that he desires for us and how we ought to live our lives. I mean, there's theological claims here. There are all kinds of things that I know you guys would not appreciate sitting here for three hours as much as I would love and act like as if it was my birthday. If we were able to do that, to sit here for three or four hours and talk about the word of God, but I understand that we don't have that time. And so I only want to lift out because I love you guys, and because I care for you guys, and I really want to bless you guys, I only want to lift out three things. But that does not mean that you don't just uh, go that you don't go home and look more intently at what the, these chapters offer us by way of continuing to walk alongside us as we continue going through the book of Hebrews. So even though I'm lifting out these three things, I just want you to know that there's a whole lot more going on, and the three things are these. That Jesus is supreme. That Jesus is a sympathizer. And that Jesus is our sibling. So I want to focus on those three things. And the first one being that Jesus is supreme. If you look at those first four verses in the first chapter, it is an eloquent, 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 let's go with that word. I think I said it right. Um, It is such a beautiful poetic imagery of who Jesus is, where he is is and what the father has bestowed upon him crown glory because he is my son who mimics me images me perfectly and at the same time he experiences everything that humanity the image bearers of God has experienced and he has learned obedience through suffering and he has taken on death and now he is seated because of his obedience to the father's desire and will he is seated above everything. There's a lot in here in that first chapter about angels, and the only point it's making, the only thing that the author is trying to communicate to you is that oftentimes the word, the message, the letter from God came through angels, came through prophets. It was hand-delivered by the messengers, by the spiritual beings that we refer to as angels, which literally means messenger. They handled this. Jesus is the better and final word. That he brings the message himself, not through any other agent, but himself to those who are in desperate need to hear it. He is bringing it to a people that have been told over and over again what they ought to do. 
to have a relationship with the Father, but continually fail and rebel and run away from the Word. And so what we have is Jesus, who comes taking on weakness, flesh, humanity. And he comes and he declares that word again for the final time. Remember, Jesus says, like, I have not come to abolish the law or what has been written or told to you by the prophets, but I've come to fulfill it. And what that tells us is Jesus declares the same message, but finally, and he also demonstrates the message for us so that we can finally get it through our thick skulls how to apply the words and walk in the word of our life. We now have a physical manifestation of how we ought to live. We have a very clear and specific and final representation of that word that God has been trying to speak to us, even in the Old Old Testament and in the old ways through the old prophets. All this has finally spoken through his son, the supreme son. There is nothing better than Jesus. And so I have a lot of thoughts about this. And so here they go. God the Father has spoken one last time and one final time through his Son. And I want to speak to this final time. The Father has said, I will not repeat myself anymore. I have spoken all that is needed to be spoken. Either you will hear it or you will not this time. The ball is in your court, but there is not going to be anything else coming. We can read the word that was given long ago as if, as has been preserved for us. This word was delivered by angels in some cases and delivered to the people through prophets. There are various ways in which God communicated to his people to help lead them in a relationship with him. Yet the people not God's word, continually failed and rebelled, ignoring the Father's voice like a stubborn teenager who seeks his own freedom and refuses to listen to the sage advice of a seasoned adult. And so God chose to speak one more time, but this time in a much more clear way. He would reiterate the message that was established from the beginning, but also add add to it a real-life example of how to apply it and live it out. The Father sent the Son to both declare and demonstrate how we can be in relationship with him. We have an example to help us live this word out. The guessing is taken out. The application is clear in view with Jesus. Praise be to God for pointing us, for uh, painting us a picture of something that we just weren't getting through our thick skulls. But take heed, because it is, it is also a final and sure word. It is the only way he will communicate moving forward. There is, no other, there is no more talking. It has all been spoken. It has all been demonstrated. And so if there is still rejection, then there is nothing left for you. You can read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is sobering. This is why Jesus declares that he hasn't come to abolish the law or the word, but has been spoken, that has been spoken, but to fulfill it. This is why Jesus is the only way, and to reject him is to reject the final word that God would give to help us have a relationship with him. So there is much to celebrate, and yet at the same time, there's much to be cautious about. If it is true 
that Jesus is the final word, that he is the only hope, then we have to take seriously our efforts in getting this final message to everyone. We need to examine what this final word calls us to do. We need to be getting this word inside our hearts so that we can take it to the streets. If this is the last message we will hear from God before he comes and judges the world, then how important is it to turn our ears and our lives towards it? We need to take this final word to the streets and declare it before the sky starts falling. We also need to apply it so that we can live into our Father's calling. I'm afraid that we have taken this final message, we have read it, and then we've set it aside on the bookshelf and then go off living our lives as we always have been. The message has told us to live like Christ, who committed his life to serving others. And yet many of our lives still resemble a, uh, a commitment to a life of serving ourselves. Instead of using our families or our lives to serve Jesus and our communities, we use them to serve ourselves and what entices us. Instead of following after the example of Christ to be set apart from this world, we still act like we are a part of it. We conform not to the image of Christ, but to the image of our culture. We don't join Jesus where he is working in the lives of the poor and needy. Instead, we join teams, clubs, hobbies, and investments because that's what we have as the idea of succeeding. The final word that has been declared and demonstrated to us through Jesus is one that speaks of holiness. Literally, being set apart from everything else because everything else is corrupted and fallen and broken. Some of, us, some of us are still in need of getting right before we get left. Church, I am not speaking to the lost. I am speaking to those who claim to be found and yet act like the lost. This is a hard word, but only those who have ears will hear it. We need to examine our lives and put everything on the table. We need to pick up every piece that's on that table of our lives and see if it makes us walk with Jesus, or if it makes us walk with our culture. I understand what I'm saying is pretty bold, and I have to do the same thing. I'm not in a position where I'm lording over you. That's Jesus' position, and Jesus has delivered that message to us. Look, guys, this is the way to Dad's house. And how you're living keeps you in your house. We have to put everything on the table. And we have to say, does this make me walk with Jesus? Okay. Does this make me look like the culture? Let's throw this out. Or let's conform it. And now we're going to make this walking with Jesus. However that needs to look in your life, I'm going to leave that up to you. I'm not going to dictate you to you all the various aspects of your life that you need to conform to the image of Christ. That's the working of the Holy Spirit. I am not the Holy Spirit. I am not your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit. And so if you feel a little squeamish and there's something that has come to your mind right now, like, oh, I've been doing this. Is, is he speaking about that thing in my life that I might need to conform to walking with Jesus? Probably. That's the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you how you ought to live your life. 
But Jesus is very specific. There is one final word that's been given to you. There's only one way. I'm your big brother, but follow me. Or you're following the things that dad is going to burn up. You're going to follow the things that won't bring you in relationship with him. Do you want a relationship with him? Then you have to follow me. There's no other way. No one else is coming. No other word will be spoken. This is it. And it's enough. Now on to some really better news. Jesus is a sympathizer. Not only is Jesus supreme and the final word and message of God, he's a sympathizer. Jesus knows weakness. He took on weakness. Later on in Hebrews, it's going to talk about how dumb and ignorant we are. And it's going to say that Jesus took on flesh, so he knows and understands that weakness, but yet he transformed his weakness into strength because that's what he does. Jesus knows the perils of death, as we have read, that he took on death. And this isn't an easy route. God didn't just snap his fingers, although he could have, to abolish death and sin. Instead, what he decided to do is, no, I'm not going to just snap my fingers and say, okay, let me just make this okay anymore. He says, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate my love and my holiness and kindness and how love and kindness and holiness eradicates sin and death. And so I'm going to take on those things and I'm going to demonstrate to the world how I will transform something bad into good. I'm going to take on frailty and I'm going to glorify it. I'm going to take on death and I'm going to live from it. So he can sympathize. Jesus knows all our hurts and pains. He has, I would even argue, experienced worse hurts and pains than you will ever experience in your life. And yet, he comforts us. And this is encouraging. You want to know why this is encouraging? Because I know how lonely it is to go through suffering, hurts and pains, horrific decisions, and having to live in those consequences. There might be somebody that can probably sympathize with me in the areas of a failed marriage. But then can they also sympathize with me in having been to jail? Can they also sympathize with me with having to lose children? Can they also sympathize with me in losing my father three years ago? Can they also sympathize with me with how idiotic I've been, how lonely I felt, how misguided I've acted? Can I find one person to do all those things? This is why I often think about it and I just get depressed because nobody can speak into my life. I might be able to find one person to speak in one of those categories in my life, but not all of them. But Jesus. Jesus can. He shows up when nobody else will. I can tell you about that two weeks I spent in jail. I could tell you how I feared for my life. I could tell you about the circumstances that had me not speak a word because I didn't want to be found out. I could tell you for two weeks I prayed for God to silence my enemies. 
he listened, and he did. I can tell you how I felt. Jesus, comfort me when nobody else could physically get to me. Jesus is the one that not only comforts you in your time of need and through your suffering, who can identify with the hurts and pains, the emotions, and, and thinking through those things. He's been there. And even in worst ways than you'll ever experience. And family, that is comforting. That's encouraging. That leads you to worship. That leads you to celebration. That leads you to even examine your life. Like, I want to be like my brother who's always there for me. That's true comfort and encouragement. So Jesus can sympathize with you, and you're going to see this unfold in the pages as we turn them in Hebrews. Let me just say another word about suffering. The trials we go through, as we would define a trial or difficulty, are meant to test the genuineness of our faith. It is in those moments that faith is vividly apparent. True faith in God, when it encounters suffering, dives more into God. That's how you know you have genuine faith, is when everything else doesn't point to him or anything else, or everything becomes extremely difficult and is a complete failure, but yet you still dive into God, because there is nothing else. That's genuine trust and faith in something so constant. Genuine faith brings you to the point that when you're experiencing the worst hurts and pains and misery of your whole entire life, you can get on your knees and say, though I am slain, I will bless your name, God. That's a hard thing. How quickly does our belief flee with just the the sudden whisper of some difficult financial situation or some kind of drama happening in the family. Our belief in God easily goes out the door if there's just but a small crack. I'm talking about those moments. You want to know, if you want to examine your faith, where you are in your relationship with God and how close in proximity you are to him, is when the door is wide open, when everyone's abandoned you, when your life is on the verge of being forfeit, that you dive into him. And you say, I am being slain. My life is yours. I will bless your name and not curse you, because you are good. The purpose of suffering is to purify that faith and get you to that point. Because it's at that point you become friends with God and are the closest you've ever been and feel his sweet embrace. Finally, Jesus is our sibling. It refers to in chapter 2 that he is the sanctifier. And we are the ones being sanctified. So the sanctifier and the ones being sanctified all come from one father. Now, I, Michael and Christopher aren't here, so I don't know what a life of twins looks like. But that's something 
Yeah, scary. But in the sense, that's our common bond with our big brother. He sanctifies, and we are being sanctified. We benefit from him. And we have one father. We share the father. We are brothers and sisters of sanctification. That's who we are. It's where our brother leads us. And lastly, speaking of Jesus being our sibling, isn't that just enough just to say the fact that the supreme, remember we started, Jesus is supreme above all things, but yet he shares and we are invited alongside the supreme as brother. Brother. Oh, I grew up with two annoying sisters. Sorry, we, they're not listening. <laughs> and I longed for a brother. Oh, I, I just wanted a brother. I'm like, man, we could wrestle together. We could still like Twinkies and eat them in the woods together. We'll build forts all day. Like, this is amazing. Like, I, I just dreamed about a brother. And so I would try to find that brotherhood in friends. And I have a very, very actually extensive brotherhood right now. My best friend, Eddie, has been a brother through all the thick and thin, has been that physical manifestation of Jesus in my life and pouring into me, and I just love him. And we, there's not a moment, I mean, we, we cannot talk for a decade and then get on the phone and still know exactly where we are in our lives. I have in Marshall and Justin a brotherhood that's even deeper and more spiritual that is a huge blessing in my life. And so now I'm not missing the fact I don't have a blood brother because now I have spiritual brothers that are even way better than that. So brotherhood is a big thing for me. Maybe it's not for you, but brotherhood is this identity, this family. We all long to be a part of a family and to have a non-dramatic family. And that's what Jesus is offering. A better family. There's that word better. And what does it say? There, did you guys, did you catch that as we were reading that? Should I read it again for you real quick? Check this out. This is what it says there in, one, in uh, I think it's verse 12, uh, verse 11 and 12. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call us brother. Saying, this is what Jesus says, guys, come on. I will proclaim your name, brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus, the supreme, is singing our praise and following after him in order to have a relationship with his dad. Jesus is proud of us who are in him, who he calls brother. Here we go, examine time. But maybe you're like me and I get a little nervous to mention his name at the checkout, at the gas station, at passersby. He's proclaiming how proud he is of us to angels in the spiritual heavenly places before the th- in the throne room of God And we're in a dump of this earth that's fallen and corrupted and we can't even go and tell people about him because he's not on the edge of our tongue. He's the best kept secret in our life. He's a a brother we want to keep at home stuck in a closet. 
and we only invite him in when it's comfortable for us. My brother, my big brother, I want to make famous because he is the end-all, be-all. He's a good brother. He's the best brother. I want you to know him. I want these people to know him. I got to do a better job being proud of my big brother. So let me close with this final parable about the family. And to kind of offer a, a summary of everything I've been trying to communicate about these two chapters we looked at. The father has sent his firstborn to initiate a prison break of his brothers and sisters. His son lands himself in jail while still, how, while still being innocent somehow to break without breaking the law. He endures the lonely, cold, embarrassing nights while he develops the plan of escape. He acquires the keys and sets himself free, the big brother. After, after all, death can't even contain him. Then he goes to every cell. And as he goes and steps towards the bars where his sibling rests on the other side, he says, my child, this is from dad. I have a message from dad. Here it is. My child, I have heard your pleas for help. I have sent your big brother there to set you free. He has experienced what you have experienced to bring you the feeling of comfort like a warm blanket on a cool night. Immediate comfort. He will open the door and he will break your chains and he will set you free. However, whether you follow him out will be up to you. Know that I love you and long to be with you. And in order to bring you to me, you must follow your big brother out. He will lead you out. He will lead you here. And not in the way that you were being led before. That will end you back into your hellhole, into your prison. But if you follow your big brother, step where he steps, leap where he leaps. If you live as he lives, he will guide you right back home here with me. You can trust him because he set himself free so he knows how to do it and he can do it perfectly. I have food and shelter waiting for you here at home. I hope to see you soon. Jesus is our big brother. He is here to set you free. But whether you will follow him whether you would lay it out all on the line and escape with him from sin and death, he will carry you to victory. He will carry you to the Father's house. Right? That's where I long to be. And I really believe that's where everyone desperately desires to be as well. And they just don't know how to get there. God has spoken. But he's sp spoken one last time. And it's Jesus. It starts with Jesus. 
It stays with Jesus. And it ends with Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.